morning. Nice to see all of you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 26 this morning, moving through chapter 4. If you don't know me, my name is Christian Cunningham. I serve as the student ministries director here. Obviously, I'm not Dave, so I need to give you a quick announcement of my name. I'm very, very happy to serve with the middle school and high school students. It's a wonderful privilege to do that. In that same vein, after this service, we're actually having a graduation ceremony for our fifth graders, eighth graders, and seniors, um, where we give gifts, and hopefully that will um, continue to spur on love for the Lord and their growth in the uh, in the gospel. And then we'll have a potluck right after that. So all the churches invited. Um, we have plenty of food, so please stay for that. Um, and before we move on to the sermon, we also have Bibles. So if you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand and Bill will um, give one to you. We'd love to have a Bible in your lap. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, and we'll be reading through chapter 4, verse 11. But before we read the text, I want to posit a few questions that I think pose a problem that this text provides a solution for. Human beings are messy. Relationships with people can be difficult. We have arguments. We have insecurities. We have clashes in personality with each other. We all deal with issues in our work life, in our family life, with our spouse, with our children. We all acknowledge this and we would heartily say, yeah, I do have these issues. But we rarely know how to deal with with them, how to solve them, how to provide relational reconciliation. We know we shouldn't take things too personally. We know we have these deep insecurities. We know that we have pride that works against us. But we continually find ourselves in gripes and quibbles and little arguments and passive aggressive comments or lack of comments. And what if I told you that the solution wasn't self help books? What if I told you the solution wasn't just family counseling? What if I told you that the solution is identity? The solution is where we find our place in this world. Now, don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with counseling, relational conflict, our skills, emotional regulation. Those aren't bad things. But if they are divorced from what scripture teaches us, then they don't provide the solution to the deep-seated issues in our hearts. We have a problem of identity. We need to find it somewhere. And the solution is our status before God. And with that, let's read Galatians 3, 26, going down through chapter 4, verse 11. For in Christ Jesus, you are now all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also... When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that that is not true of us, that the work of the elders here is not in vain, but that we would realize our status as adopted sons and daughters of the King, knowing that it calls us to personal holiness, but also knowing it provides us tremendous rest, knowing our identity is sure and steady. Lord, we know your word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Let the Spirit work among us to conform us into the image of your Son. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So I think this text breaks down into three major sections. If you look with me at verse 26, um, that's where our text begins. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. That sonship theme continues throughout this text. But in chapter 4, verse 1 we see an illustration come up, which I think breaks into a new section where he says, I mean that the heir as long as he is a child. So he's breaking into an illustration that continues through verse seven. Then verse eight, he continues to apply it even further. Formerly when you did not know God. So I see this text breaking up from chapter three, 26 through 29, chapter four, verses one through seven, then chapter four, eight through 11. So what do these points center around? So the whole theme is adoption, the gospel and sonship, that we are adopted into the family of God. The first point, the first section, will discuss the spiritual sonship that we now have in Abraham and through the Abrahamic promises. The second section, the text makes clear that the only reason we have this sonship is for adoption. The reason we have this sonship, rather, is for or through the work of redemption that Christ accomplished. Lastly, we will see that it is foolish to turn back to enslavement now that Christ has set us free. So with that, we can move to our main point. The gospel accomplishes our sonship in Abraham, our redemption in Christ, and our freedom from slavery. The gospel accomplishes our sonship in Abraham, our redemption in Christ, and our freedom from slavery. The context of this letter, as we saw a few weeks ago with Andy, is false teaching by the Judaizers. And they were adding works and specifically circumcision as necessary for our salvation. However, all the way from chapter 3, verse 1, through our text, Paul is proving that our right standing with God is by faith in Christ alone. There's nothing that we could do to add to that status, and there's nothing we could do to change that status. So with that, let's move to our first main point. The gospel accomplishes our sonship and Abraham. Let's read the text again. This is verses 26 through 29 of chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus, 
you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek, neither slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So from Galatians 3.1 all the way through our text, Paul has done a lot of work to prove that we are made right with God or we are justified by faith in Christ. And specifically, that is true even in the Old Testament itself. This comes to a head in these verses by revealing what these truths actually accomplish. What does the gospel accomplish for you in daily life? But let's quickly review from chapter 3 to really see the true weight of these verses. So first, Paul told us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came by faith. We enter into the covenant community by the Spirit, and it continues by faith. We didn't receive the Spirit by our works, and we don't continue in the Spirit by our works. It's done through faith. Second, he argues that faith is how we enter into Abraham's covenant family. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and it's the same for us today. After that, he shows that the Mosaic law, the Old Testament, was temporary, and the Abrahamic covenant and those promises have priority for our lives. And these points have significant bearing on our discussion here. Look at verse 26 with me again. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So because of what Christ has done, his person and work, and through our faith, we have a new status, a new name, son or daughter. It is clear that we have to have faith in Christ to have this result of sonship. But what does sonship mean in the Bible? What is the unfolding plan of God when it refers to this term, sonship or daughtership? This language of sonship is actually highly connected to how the whole Bible unfolds across the divine covenant. So if you remember, the Bible's plot structure, the backbone of the whole Bible is six divine covenants that God makes with man. A covenant central to it is a promise of a familial relationship. In the divine covenants throughout the Bible, God is the father and the covenant mediator is described as the son. So we'll look at all six divine covenants and see how they all center around this theme of father-son. The Adamic and Noahic covenants both have the same points of evidence. If you remember, when God created Adam, it was in the image and likeness of God. And then he uses those same two terms to describe his relationship to Noah. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Well, we don't have to wonder. Genesis 5 gives us the answer. Just four chapters after that language is used, Genesis 5.1 says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. In his own likeness after his image. Same two Hebrew words there. So verse 3 is key. It tells us that just as God fathered a son Adam in his image and likeness, Adam fathered a son Seth in his own image and likeness. So Adam and Noah are both considered covenant sons of God. This covenant sonship is implied in Abraham and is explicit once again in the Mosaic Covenant. 
If you remember when uh, Moses was initially called to go back to Egypt and bring the Israelites through the Exodus, what does he say? Well, in Exodus 4.21, this is what the Lord says to Moses. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So this covenant sonship goes from the individuals of Adam and Noah and Abraham to the corporate nation of Israel. They all function as a covenant firstborn son of God. And this father-son relationship implies submission and obedience to the father. Israel is supposed to represent God for the whole world, but we see that Israel is far from an obedient son. As we move across the biblical storyline, we see Israel fail over and over again. A great case study is the book of Judges. They fail and sin with idolatry and worshiping false gods. And after God sends a judge to save them and redeem them out of their bondage to other nations, and after they're saved, they fall once again to idolatry over and over again. They needed a leader like Moses and Joshua of old. And by the end, it's clear in Judges 21-25, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Meaning the solution was a great king, a ruling king. And that expectation is fulfilled in David. And of course, we know that David is also a covenant mediator. God makes specific promises to David in a covenant relationship. And I'm sure you can anticipate what this covenant relationship is like. This is Second Samuel 7, 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So again, father-son relationship. Saul was a false king. He was like all the other nations, and he was handsome and tall, just like, I'm kidding. He was handsome and tall, and he was like all the other nations and what they wanted. David was a true king, a true son of God. He was a man after God's own heart. God could have picked other relationships to emphasize throughout the Bible. He describes the Mosaic Covenant as marriage, but I think father and son relationships exist to show a unique relationship of father and son. It's no mistake that God in Trinity is called father, son, and spirit. So I think part of the reason God the Father created the world was to fill the whole world with divine sons that look like his divine son. It was designed from the beginning that God would create a world in an act of love for his son, that the whole world would be filled with people that look like the son, that submit to the father, that worship and love the father. The father initiated a plan to fill the world with other sons that look like the divine son 
because of his love for the son. However, what happened in Genesis 3? We sinned and don't fulfill that commission to be sons and daughters of God. Yet, what did the son do? The son came, took on human flesh, lived the perfect life as the divine son, died in our place. And what does he accomplish for us? We are brought into this sonship and now can reflect the son's glory once again. Now, I'm not saying we're going to become little gods, but there is a unique intratrinitarian love that's here. God loved the son and created a world that was filled with sons. And the son loves the father to redeem us back to that status once again. We are brought into, as it were, a Trinitarian relationship. And how does this happen? Well, through faith. So if you're not a Christian, to have this secure status, to be brought in fellowship and relationship with God, you must believe by faith that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and died on the cross for you. So because of our faith in Christ, we now have what's called union covenantal union with him. Remember, the essence of justification is a double transfer. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's not just he bore the punishment for our sins, but he also grants to us the blessings and promises of his life. The blessings that Jesus should have received are given to us while he bears the curses. All of the blessing that Christ receives are the promises all throughout the Bible. If Jesus is the true covenant son, then he receives all the promises that the past sons would have received. He is the true and better Adam, the greater Noah, the more faithful Abraham, the more obedient Israel, and the greater David. He inherits all the promises from those earlier covenants. And when we put our faith, our ultimate trust in him, We become co-heirs, co-inheritors of those same promises. All of the promises of God are, are ours through faith in Christ alone. Only because of Christ's work on the cross do we receive the full benefits of covenant sonship. That's what verse 26 says. God did not inspire the Old Testament for us to ignore. We are to see the fulfillment and climax in what Christ has done for us. Paul continues this language of sonship in verses 27 through 29. Let's read them again to get them in our ears. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When the New Testament talks about baptism, it's always after repentance and faith. We become covenant sons through faith, and baptism is the initiating oath sign of being in the covenant family. In Abraham, you entered the covenant by circumcision, and now in the new covenant with Christ, we enter in through baptism. We become sons at our conversion, sons and daughters at our conversion when we put our faith in Jesus. But baptism is our adoption ceremony. When the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit are bestowed upon us in baptism. And this baptism unifies us into one new covenant family. Because we have undergone 
our adoption ceremony, we are one family of God, and the local church is described as God's household. So we are in the household of God as one family, unified across gender, ethnic, and all other ways that could be divided. We are one family, partaking of one baptism, believing in the one faith. If we are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ, then we receive all of the Abrahamic promises as the true offspring of Abraham. More than that, the Lord's Supper is our continual family meal that we take together. So by way of application, these are not truths that are just ethereal and to be in our minds. Your status as a son and daughter is sure. It's so sure that Jesus paid the penalty to secure it. As sure as Jesus' death has paid for your sins is as sure as your status is in Christ. Your adoption into the family is grounded in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. At our core, each of us struggles with identity. Who am I? What am I here to do? We tend to identify ourselves by our gifts, strengths, our job. And when we don't live up to our standard... When we compare ourselves to others, we become insecure, we become hopeless, we become prideful to kind of assert ourselves over each other, but we must remember our identity and status is already accomplished. It's already secure. Our status as sons and daughters of the king is unchanging, and our eternal status is already confirmed and affirmed in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Another application point is to reveal our status as commission. We have a job to do. There is a job description attached to our status. Just as we should, in our earthly ways, obey our fathers, we should obey our heavenly father as well. If we have this sonship status, we should be a model of self-sacrifice, love, grace, mercy. Remember, Jesus is our model and motivation for the Christian life. The Christian life looks like Jesus on the cross being self-sacrificial, loving, merciful, gracious to us, and more. And that overwhelming joy and security we have in the cross motivates us to do the same for others. What Jesus has done for us on the cross, we should do for each other. Namely, be self-sacrificial, be loving, Be merciful, be gracious to others. So in our quibbles, in our fights with each other, we are to look at what Jesus has done on the cross for us and bestowed upon us, and that's what we are to do to each other. This is what people need. When you hear from this pulpit very frequently that we are to preach the gospel to ourselves, part of it is to remind ourselves that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. Paul Tripp often calls us gospel amnesiacs. We forget our status, and we need to remind ourselves of it each day. So when we look at our believing spouse, believing friends, remind yourself that they are also an adopted son and daughter, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect son. And should we not do the same for each other as adopted children? But we must not forget the obvious This status of sonship was bought with a price. And that brings us to our second point. The gospel accomplishes our redemption in Christ. This is chapter 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, 
though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So in this portion of our text, we have the use of an illustration on Paul's part. His illustration is to show the function of the Old Testament, the benefits we have in the New Covenant. So I'll break this main point down into three subpoints or sections. First, we'll analyze the illustration that's given in verses 1 through 2. After that, we'll look at how the illustration is significant in verses 3 through 5, and then see adoption in daily life in verses 6 through 7. So first, the illustration in verses 1 and 2. The illustration is the relationship between a son, father, and a guardian or manager. The son is described as a rightful heir to the father's inheritance, but the son is unable to receive the inheritance until, well, he's grown up and mature. It seems that the time and function of the guardian manager is no longer needed when the son can receive his inheritance. Almost like a live-in homeschool nanny, this tutor, I think would be a better way to translate, would work to educate and train children until they were ready for adulthood. Their job was temporary but necessary, and after the tutor left, the son is ready to receive the inheritance. So second, what's the significance of this illustration in verses 3 through 5? Well, verse 3 tells us that this illustration is to apply to us when he says, in the same way. So here's what I think is going on in this illustration. The father is God, the nation of Israel is the son, and the tutor is the old covenant Mosaic law. Paul works through greater detail in past verses, but uh, we'll assume those conclusions here. And I think this is what's going on. The time of the tutor, the old covenant law has ended. Christ, the divine son, came, redeemed us from our slavery to the tutor, freed us to receive our adoption and our inheritance. God, the divine son, the fulfillment of all covenant sons before him, added to himself a human nature, redeemed us. And this redemption language is a purchasing. He purchased us to move us from slave to free. Jesus took the payment of our sin and gives us this new freed status. But we're not just freed slaves that run around the city. We have a home. We have a new father. We have a new family, a new name, and a new identity. But before we move on, there's something important that I think we need to see here. Look with me at verse 4. It says that the son is born of woman, born under the law course he was born of woman everyone is what what's the significance of this illusion well this i think unlocks an important theme in the old testament in genesis 3:15, after adam and eve sinned in the garden of eden as the as god is cursing the serpent he says i will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel In God's curse on the serpent, 
He reveals the path for salvation. A seed of the woman. A seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan, reverse the curse on humanity. This will be a dragon slayer. However, we see throughout the biblical storyline that the seed of the woman is not as easy as you might think. God promises to Abraham, if you remember, that he would be in the line of descent. But Sarah was barren. And only after many years, they have a miracle child named Isaac. And his wife, Rebecca, also struggles with bearing children. And as we move across the Bible story, we see in Isaiah 54 a climactic escalation of these promises. This is Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have been in labor, excuse me, who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will be spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So what's happening to the barren woman? She's going to have more children than one who is married. She's going to have a larger tent and need to expand the tent because she's going to have a lot more kids. She's going to have a bigger family. She's going to possess the nations, meaning all the nations are going to be brought into the family of God and inherit the Abrahamic promises. I think the barren woman here is Sarah, and she is going to have a lot more children, namely the Gentiles, you and I. And this is why Jesus must be born of woman. Because he must be a man to represent man and crush Satan's head. He must be born of a woman to fulfill all of these expectations and promises and accomplish the plan of redemption to bring us into God's family. This also has significance for being born under the law. Not only must he be a seed of the woman to crush the seed of the serpent, he must also be born under the Mosaic covenant to free us from the curse of the law and give us grace. Now, before we even move on, consider what that means for your daily life. As Christians, adopted sons and daughters, we are not treated like we broke the law. Do you realize that? When God the Father looks upon you, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't see iniquities. He doesn't see transgressions. He doesn't see a lawbreaker. He sees a son. He sees a daughter. We are consistently met with grace. And don't stop there. Should we not give that same grace to each other? We have so many unspoken and assumed laws that we place on each other. We impose laws on our children, we impose laws on our spouses. We impose law on our friends. And when they don't meet that standard, well, we give them the silent treatment. Passive-aggressive comments, arguing, fighting. When Jesus meets us with grace, should we not show that same grace to each other? Now, grace doesn't make wrong right. Grace chooses to not treat others according to their wrongs. Grace does not ignore wrong but treats us like we don't sin. So why do we impose this law on ourselves? Why do we impose law on each other? 
Jesus died to free us and give us grace. Third, adoption in daily life in verses 6 through 7. So first we saw the illustration, the purpose of the illustration, and now adoption in daily life. This is verses 6 through 7. And these two verses reveal the work of the Holy Spirit. Because of Jesus' redeeming work on the cross, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cries in our hearts, Abba, Father. What does this mean? Elsewhere in Paul, the work of the Spirit is to seal or guarantee our status as adopted sons until we can receive the full benefits of the inheritance. Look with me at Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit confirms our adopted status and promises the inheritance to come. In verses 3 through 5 in Ephesians 1, the Father is said to adopt us to be holy and blameless, and the Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, is to guarantee the future promises. So when we call God Abba, Father, it is identifying a special relationship that we have with God, a covenantal Father. Now, most of us probably are familiar with that, but when we look throughout the Gospels, only Jesus calls God Abba. In the Old Testament and in Jewish uh, understanding, it would be sacrilegious to think of God as an Abba Father. The Jews feared it would diminish God's holiness and majesty and shows a unique and special relationship that God the Son, Jesus, has with God the Father. And Stephen Wellham comments on this point helpfully. Jesus views his relationship to his father as utterly unique. But as Paul later emphasizes, we call God Abba as adopted sons of God due to the work of Christ in our relationship. In other words, it is because and only because we are united by faith to the son that we have any access to the father by the spirit. As such, our use of Abba is only due to our adoption in Christ. So in other words, we have a special access and relationship to God the Father purchased by God the Son through covenant. We have special access to the Father as the divine sons does and can call him Abba. To use an illustration from Tim Keller, the creator of the universe, the great mighty king, is our father, and we can go into his room at two o'clock in the morning asking for a drink of water. This unique special relationship is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, that is a further bedrock promise that you have adoption. You have this status and await the future promises. So more than that, we see that our slavery is done. We are now sons and daughters of God, And Jesus Christ accomplishes the true covenant sonship and gives us the blessings and glories of being a covenant son as well. So if you are a son and daughter, then you have an inheritance. You are an heir. An heir of what? Well, every promise of God. Because of Christ's righteous life, we receive all the blessings associated with his life. And we can say... 
that God will never leave us or forsake us because of the work of Christ. We can say that God will bring us and usher us into the new heavens and new earth because of Jesus' work on the cross. We can say that the Holy Spirit will make us more and more like Jesus because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. We can have confident assurance because Christ already did the work to give us these promises. And we can have confident assurance because Christ already did all the work to give us access and a special relationship with the Father. We can only call God Abba, our Father, as a son because of what Jesus did for us. So we saw clearly that the gospel accomplishes our Abrahamic sonship because of our redemption in Christ. We saw that we become a spiritual son of Abraham, bringing us into the new family of God. And we also saw that our redemption in Christ frees us from slavery. Now we conclude with the last point. The gospel accomplishes our freedom from slavery. This is verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that, by nature, are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So this last set of verses is a simple exhortation to live in the freedom of the gospel. There are two paths that tend to happen in the Christian life, and both are clear in this text. Verse 8 says, you are enslaved to those, or were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. I think this is the clear path of rebellion, sin, and idolatry. And verse 10 is the slavery of elementary principles of legalism. So we can either enslave ourselves to further sin, idolatry, and we can enslave ourselves to legalism and self-righteousness. This problem of adding works to the gospel or letting the gospel be a license to sin is not new or novel. And in other words, we're no different than Israel. Throughout the book of Numbers, they continue to complain about how they had the leeks and the onions and all these great benefits of Egypt, but they forget one big thing. They were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. They were complaining over and over again that they had it better in Egypt, but they were slaves. And Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4, is always so striking to me. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back. Now it's easy to point the finger at Israel, isn't it? We can say, who delivered you out of Egypt with 10 miraculous plagues? Who parted the Red Sea for you so that you might pass on dry ground? Who brought you to the edge of the promised land? But we do the same thing, don't we? We go back to our sin. We go back to self-righteousness and could say to ourselves, who delivered you out of the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of life through the death of the Son, Jesus Christ, who made a way to become an adopted son in God's family when there was no other way? 
who will bring you to a new and greater promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. We have greater promises, greater assurances in the new covenant, but we do the same thing. We go back to slavery to idols. We go back to slavery to self-righteousness and self-assurance. We consistently go back to slavery. And Paul's beckoning plea is to say this. Don't turn back. Embrace Christ. We tend to look back at our sin as pleasurable, enjoyable, enslave ourselves to either sin or law. And both end up in catastrophic areas. We turn back to false gods of idols, of sex, greed, power, fame, beauty. We turn back to observing self-imposed laws and legalism. It all ends in the same place, save slavery. And because we are no longer slaves and sons, we don't have to go back to slavery anymore. We no longer live under the clutches of sin and self-righteousness. Jesus has given us our freedom. What does this freedom look like? Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The text is clear. Our freedom in Christ is to live a righteous life. Freedom from sin means that you're free to do something. If we're free from sin, it doesn't make sense that we are free to sin. If we are free from sin, we're free to live a holy, righteous life. Without the person and work of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be able to do anything righteous. And true freedom is being able to do that. Without the person and work of Jesus on the cross, we would not be able to lead our wives. We would not be able to submit to our husbands. We would not be able to swallow our pride. We would not be able to forgive our enemies. We would not be able to speak the truth in love. We would not be able to give generously, respond in humility, act selflessly. We couldn't do that, but Christ has made us able to do that, to be free, to live in Christ, to be free, to have joy, to be free, to show love, to have peace and more. Who wouldn't want that? But our culture views these things as slavery. It's counterintuitive to our our culture. And our mind, ultimate freedom is self-expression, self-authenticity, rebranding yourself every six months. Ultimate freedom is not that. It is having a new, greater identity purchased by Christ through his shed blood to have a new identity, rest in that identity, and live a life pleasing to the Lord. That's freedom. So as we close, I hope you see how our adoption into Christ's family answers the problems given in the introduction. Our relationships with others will change the more we realize our status as sons and our freedom in Christ. Our freedom is freedom from sin to righteousness and holiness. And this is not ivory tower theology. This has real, daily, practical application. So if our status is purchased, we should live like sons and daughters of God. We should seek to look more and more like the true son. We should stop applying law to ourselves and to those around us and respond with grace. Remind yourself of your identity as a child of God. Remind yourself of what Jesus did to purchase you out of slavery. And I say with Paul, don't turn back. Live in freedom.
Let's pray. Lord, we are so humbled and grateful by these truths. We ask that you would help us conform to the image of your divine son, Jesus Christ. Help us to realize our status as adopted sons and daughters. Help us to show grace to each other the way you've shown grace to us. Lord, we have such tremendous blessings that you have given us. Help us to never forget it. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.